Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would always be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, you, you cannot know the joy that I have in being here, Fran and I, to be in your midst. Um, I will tell you without hesitation, first thing up, Todd Hunter is a hero of mine. Um, I love this man. He has been um, a bishop to me. Well, he is my bishop, but he's been a bishop to me in so many ways um, I cannot describe. I've been an Anglican, first Episcopalian, and then Anglican uh, really all my life, and I've known bishops to be administrative heads whose primary interest was in what I was doing. Todd is a pastoral head whose interest is in me, and the difference is palpable. And he conveys that to the entire diocese, and I want you to know that because you may not see what I see in the entire diocese. I see a diocese that a collection of 60 churches and maybe 100 clergy uh, scattered all over the country that are, we're all here because we love the Lord Jesus, but we have this incredible respect and admiration for Bishop Todd Hunter. And um, you all are very blessed to have him as often as you do. By the way, I, I was told I had 20 minutes. None of these preliminary remarks count for that. <laughs> I mean, Todd has been um, a gift. He's a, he's a gift to my wife and I in so many ways. Um, he has been, as I say, a father in God. I could tell lots of stories about Todd, but we're not here for that. We're here to open up the Word of God. And I know as the, this epistle was being read, I heard whispers. Is she reading the whole thing? Oh my gosh. Then I heard again, I hope he's not preaching on that whole thing. Um, actually, I'm, it's going to take two weeks to get through this, and we're just going to touch lightly the surface of it. This is an amazing passage here from the Apostle Paul, from the heart of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And I thought before I got into the meat of this passage, which I, th I find so compelling, I give you just a little background so you can see it, visualize it in your mind, because if you look at the first verse of chapter 8, automatically it refers, or immediately it refers to things you, you probably want to know about, like who's writing, who's he writing to, who's he writing about, what's the backstory behind this appeal that the Apostle Paul is making. And just, I don't have many slides, but I do have a few. I want you to put, I want you to see this slide right here. Where the circle is, this is where the conversion of the Apostle Paul took place. Uh, maybe, what, um, 20 years earlier? We don't know. But he and Jesus were almost contemporaries, maybe separated. This is the most amazing, almost accidental meeting in all of history, that the Lord Jesus... And the Apostle Paul never met face to face in real life. But Jesus was crucified. He died. He rose again. And this church began to rise up with this message of good news that the Savior had come, the Messiah had come, and had paid all the price. And, and of course, this was blasphemy to the Apostle Paul. And so he went after the Christians 
Today, we would call somebody with that kind of religious zeal who wanted to stamp out the faith. Well, we, we know what we'd call him. We'd call him a terrorist. And this is exactly what he was. The Apostle Paul had in his fist uh, letters, registered letters. And he was on his way to Damascus, which is uh, just north of that circle. And he was on his way there to place under house arrest or to break up the families of the church. And that's when he got clocked. Jesus spoke to him. He fell to the ground. His eyes were blinded. The only thing open were his ears. And he heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And something sinked in his heart and he knew that it was the Lord Jesus whom he had been persecuting. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And with that, the world of the apostle fell apart. You cannot imagine the kind of intense intensity that this religious man had for the faith of his fathers, the zeal for his pharisaical attitude. Everything was exact. Everything was perfect. Everything was so carefully worked out in the mind of this vast intellect that when Jesus actually spoke to him, he had no category. He had no way to imagine what had happened. The one who had been crucified, the one that, whose message I am here to stamp out is actually not crucified, I mean, not dead, but alive. And the, where the Bible said, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, God raised this man from the dead. And Paul was never the same. If we were to study his conversion, we would see that he spent what is known, well, uh, we don't know how long, maybe three years, maybe 14 years, rewiring that magnificent brain of his to get these categories thinking right. And then around 55 AD, plus or minus 20 plus or minus years after the death of Jesus and the conversion of the Apostle Paul, he is up in this church and he hears an old prophet stand up. His name, the prophet's name was Agabus. And he's prophesying that in Jerusalem, which is home base, ground zero for the Apostle Paul, a famine is about to come. Years of terrible hardship are going to come on these Christians. The whole church heard this, and they decide to take up an offering. And the Apostle Paul says, I'll lead it. I just, I want you to see the amazing conversion of not only the Apostle Paul's mind, but his heart. The very people who only years ago he was trying to stamp out he now has taken, he's undertaken a mission to find enough money to subsidize them, to hold them up and make them strong. So then he goes off on his missionary journey. And when he goes, one of the stops he makes is where that little magnifying lens is. That's in the town of Corinth. Corinth is, uh, let's go to the next slide. Corinth is uh, an interesting place. It's a sailor town, 
but actually with two ports, so it's double the sin of any kind of, of you know, a, a, a port in every storm. Well, they had two ports, this one, and uh, it's a very interesting piece of, of land. Let's go to the next slide. You'll see here, up there is the Temple Apollos. That was a, a temple dedicated to prostitution, and there are prostitutes everywhere in the city of Corinth. One interesting thing you might want to know, one more slide, is that to get across the isthmus, they would drag boats here, I can't remember, 100 and some odd years ago, they cut a canal, and now they can actually pull boats through the canal, but in the ancient world, they actually put them on rolling logs and dragged them over this isthmus because it was so such a critical uh, place to be, and these boats had to get going. The point I'm making is that Corinth was a, a meeting place for every imaginable kind of person in the world to meet. I mean, it was, people who joined the church in Corinth were, shall we say, colorful. They had all kinds of backstories. There were prostitutes, of course, and there were shopkeepers, and there was a, an, an engineer, an engineer, a magistrate that worked at the city. And there were fancy women with, you know, big coiffed hairs like they have in North Dallas, not in Southern California, but, you know, big <laughs> Dallas hair. And there were all kinds of people in this. I mean, it, everyone you could imagine, it was a small church, but everyone you could possibly imagine joining some, from various, you know, people groups was part of this church. And Paul's on this mission to raise money. Let's see if we can go one more slide. Yeah, so now these churches up there, at the, you see where Corinth is down at the bottom, but up at the top you have churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and um, Amphipolis and Neapolis. That's Macedonia. So now maybe the passage will make some sense. So look, look at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's coming from Macedonia, or reminding them of the time he was in Macedonia. There were churches there that did enormous things. I mean, I've been there a couple of times, and there was a church in Philippi that was started at at a revival, a a negative revival in a sense. A, a, A girl, a slave girl that had been possessed of a demon was freed And that turned the whole town into an uproar. And Paul and Silas and his crew were thrown into prison. And the jailer, the warden of the jail, came to faith. The little girl came to faith. They had already brought this wealthy woman named Lydia to faith. There was a revival going on in Philippi. Another church up there is Berea. What was going on in Berea? Well, Berea, they, they loved the Bible. They loved the scriptures of the Old Testament. They had Bible studies. These people, it says, the Bible says they were noble. They loved to have all kinds of Beth Moore Bible studies and all, all kinds of, of uh, video series because they just studied, studied, studied. And the church in Thessaloniki, not so much. Those were very immature Christians. Those were the Christians that... In one letter, Paul says, don't worry, Jesus is coming back. He will, you will not be left behind. Don't worry about that. And next, in the next letter, Paul says, would you get to work? You're sort of not worrying, you know, taking this a little too far. If a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. They were just bouncing all over with hope or despair. In any event, Paul says to the Corinth church, you wouldn't believe what those guys did. 
they gave to this group of Jewish Christians, get this, whom they had never met out of their own resources enough that would totally bowl you over. This is what I wanted to convey to you today, that there were believers in that Macedonian churches, all these up here, whether they're by revival, by conviction, through immaturity, maybe they were just seeking, or maybe they were mature, believing, always been a member of some kind of faith community. When they all got together, they gave up, up to God in such a way that the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church, look, I want you to give, but before you do, take a look at these guys over here. And then he includes a sentence that I want to just highlight for you. When I look at my Bible, I've got 10 points to make. I won't do that today, but I will make comment on just the next couple of verses. What does he say? I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. So look, brothers, I, I, I want you to know that something happened up in these Macedonian churches. They got the grace of God. And when they got it, look what happened. Verse two, in a severe test of affliction, What's that about? Well, we don't know. We don't know what happened. Paul knows. The Corinthians knew. Paul knew that the Corinthians knew. The Macedonians knew. But something wasn't right. Maybe there was disease that had come through the town. Maybe there was hardship or unemployment. Or maybe some kind of weather catastrophe had happened. We don't know. But in a severe test of affliction, that is, this wasn't the best time to take up an offering. Even still, these people gave. In a severe test of affliction, and then it says, their abundance of joy. They, they had something inside of them that began to well up. He calls it an abundance of joy. And I just want to ask you, have you ever had that abundance of joy? Chances are you are here in this room because at one point in your life, you came to a conclusion, an awareness, a ha moment, and you said, I get it. I get the love of God. I get the gospel. And that poured back into your life something that may have already escaped, but joy. And you're wondering, where did that joy go? And I'll tell you where it went. It is directly related to your appreciation, your interest, your love, your reading about Jesus. There's a whole lot to do with the Christian life that has to do with the way you behave and the theology and, and uh, doctrine and church and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus says, I am telling you, I'm telling you these things about me, John 15, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And these Macedonians had an abundance of joy. That meant even two and a half decades after the death of Christ, they were remembering him and they had joy because of it. So it was the test of the affliction that was the abundance of joy. And then it says their extreme poverty. And I tell you what, this just doesn't make any sense. People don't give out of their poverty, right? They give out of their overflow, out of their abundance. They give because they have extra, not these Macedonians. They give, they give because they had nothing extra. And everything that they had to give was therefore a total sacrifice. It's, I mean, once you get into this, you, you can't, what do they say? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
you begin to see that there was such a spirit of something that compelled these Christians to give. And all of this overflowed with a wealth, he says, of generosity. We have no idea how much it was that they gave. And really, who cares? Who cares? Because what they gave out of was this wealth of generosity. They may not have had money. You know you can have money and no generosity. You know that, right? Amen to that? You can have no generosity and wealth. Well, I just said that, but I'm saying it in reverse. But you can also have a lot of no money and overwhelming generosity because you can take what little you do have and place it before the Lord and say, this is yours, God. That's a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Now, the reason I bring this up, Todd did not ask me to preach on this at all, but I've been doing a lot of reflection on this because a year ago, this is a little side story, a year ago, I was recovering from back surgery. And just before the operation, I went to, to the doctor and the, they were telling me what I could do postoperatively. And he said, do you have a... A, kind of a lazy boy. Remember those? Lazy boy. You have a recliner at home? And immediately I thought of the blue recliner I have in my study. And I sort of imagined myself in front of a television, Netflix, and iTunes here, and a stack of books and things like that. And I imagined just sleep. I was tired anyway. I was sleeping through the day, just enjoying this weeks and weeks and weeks of recovery. He said, do you have a recliner? And I said, yes. He said, get rid of it. I said, what? I mean, I, I, I was kind of looking forward to this like, like, like vacation. He said, no, get rid of it. People who recover in a recliner never get up. I want you up 50 minutes every hour standing and walk, 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 walk. I said, can I sit down once? He said, for 10 minutes on a hardback wooden chair. That's it. And I, I recovered dutifully. I didn't sit down in that recliner once. I walked and I stood. And I stood and I read these passages over and over and over again. And it, it, it's embedded in me about these Macedonians. They're fascinating that, that they would give according to their means. Means if they went up, they gave up. If their means went down, well, they would give a little bit less, but actually not really. Look what it says. They gave according to their means, I can testify, and beyond their means. We know what it means to live beyond our means, right? Do you know what it means to give beyond your means? I do. Just before we left Christ Church, I was making an appeal for funds like every rector has to do from time to time to remind people, hey, you know, we got to keep the funds going. And, and I said, you know... We need everyone here to, I'm going to send out a statement, which I had, and it's going to tell you where you are relative to your, your agreed upon giving for the year, and use this month to catch up. And I admitted something. I said, for example, I just, just discovered that my wife and I are one month behind in our giving. And you know, we're going to make it up before I left that day, I took out the checkbook and I wrote a check for one month of giving, which is a tithe for us. Well, I didn't know that Fran would do exactly the same thing. 
And so now we are really giving beyond our means because I gave one month, she gave another month. We were two months out and we were already given for that current month. I did not want to be the only person in 31 years at Christ Church who would go and ask for their check to be returned, all right? So we just let it go. But we gave beyond our means. Well, you see the point I'm making. Over and over again, we see this amazing group of Christians who gave to people that they had never met, they would never meet, for they gave according to their means, beyond their means, of their own accord. Look at verse 4. They begged us, please take up an offering. Take up another offering. We want to give. We really do. They begged us. It's a favor, it says. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. All we care about today is being able to be part of what you're doing. We want to be so with you, the apostle Paul, that, that you will take something from us to go to them. And this, and you have to know that Paul probably felt this was the whole crux of it. Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Verse and then by the will of God to us. What an extraordinary thing it is when you realize, as Paul realized about his life and the Macedonians realized about theirs, that all we have, whether it's in times of affliction or plenty, in times of liberality or times of leanness, for the believer, all we have is the, the things that have been given to us it's an opportunity to give up to the Lord, make everything count for the Lord. Well, I tell you, I stood at this with his back brace on and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 over and over and over again. And I've given you, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 different things to think about. I actually came up with 35 things within the first 15, 18 verses. That'll be for another time. But please, Go deep. Imagine yourself as a steward of what God has entrusted you with. And the chief, listen to this, the chief virtue of the early church, the surprising, hidden, but central virtue of the early church was generosity. They gave. They couldn't wait to give. Everything about their life. And I'm not just talking about giving in church on Sunday. I'm not talking about that at all. Every aspect of their life was characterized by this incredible, virtuous ability to be generous, to open up and to pass on the good things that God has given to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.